we are continuing and uh, actually concluding a short series that we're calling How to Human. We started a couple weeks ago talking about this idea, how to human, and using the word human as a verb, and uh, we just decided that we can do that. And we're talking about what that looks like, uh, what it looks like to human as God intended us to human. So in part one, we talked about being human, and we offered a few ways to begin to correct our course and, and, and human the way God intended. And so in part one, we said, be you, be love, be compassion, be justice, be wonder, be human, just be. Last week, we said that as human beings, we are desperate to be seen. We want to be seen not only for who we are, but also for why we are. So we talked about some ways that we can be, need to, like, to begin to see humans. And we said, number one, we said, see bias. And we, we examined the life of Jesus as we've done each week in this series. And we pretty easily identified some people groups that Jesus saw that other people didn't want to see. And we said that in learning to see our own bias, we have to adjust our own lenses before people actually feel seen by us. Then we said, see closer. And we looked at that encounter between Philip and the Ethiopian in Acts chapter 8. And honestly, I saw something in that story I'd never seen before or really paid attention to before, like the significance of where the Ethiopian eunuch invites Philip to come up into his chariot to sit with him. And we said that as we learned a human, as Jesus has called us to human, it's not enough to simply walk up to the chariots that we are uncomfortable with, but that we are inevitably going to have to place our opinions and our agendas and our egos aside and get in their chariot. So we asked the awkward question, what are the chariots that you need to get into? So that got pretty uncomfortable, and so we moved on to number three. See, yeah, even now you're feeling it right now. We'll just keep moving. See to serve. And we said that we feel seen when we are served, and we looked at the example of Jesus, and he himself said he didn't come to be served, but to serve. And then number four was see clearly, that we'll find that we have to get near so we can be clear. Uh, we read the passage in Matthew 28, where some of Jesus' disciples uh, doubted that he'd actually risen from the dead. And to address their doubt, the scripture says that Jesus came near. For some of us, the next step in, in seeing humans is to close the gap. And then we said, see journeys. This is probably the most unsatisfying part of the message last week. Uh, we read the story in John 8 where the Pharisees brought the woman caught in adultery uh, to Jesus in order to trick him. And in the end, what we discovered is that Jesus saw humans where others saw issues. And I challenge you to lean into this statement that I'm not standing on issues, I'm walking with people. And honestly, that probably got me in trouble with some people, time will tell. But so, so what, I, uh, what we landed on was see bias, see closer, see to serve, see clearly, and see journeys, see humans. And if you're anything like me, after listening to all that we've talked about in the last two sermons, and it's a lot, we condensed a lot of it, but you may feel as though this human thing is too hard to pull off with any kind of focus. Maybe you think you could be like, if we could be like half human and half robot, that'd be much easier. And I don't know, but maybe you think it would be better to just let your life kind of live you as opposed to living your life. Uh, I mean, who has the capacity to be love, be compassion, be justice, be wonder, see bias, see closer, see to serve? It's a lot. It's a lot. And I get that. But I want us to remember something. 
something I believe about the one that we are trying to model this human thing after, Jesus himself. And, and I, th- I think there are only like two kinds of people in this room and on church online and listening on the podcast, those who believe that Jesus is the Son of God and those who don't. And, and here's the thing. Like, you don't have to believe in Jesus, the promised Messiah, the Son of God, to understand His perfection, right? If you're unsure still about who Jesus is, uh, if you're unsure, you're still not sure if He really, is He really God in the flesh, like, that's a lot to get your, your brain around, and you get, you, if that's where you sit, you get to look at Him as simply a historical figure. And if that's the case, I would say you kind of got it easy. But I'm here to tell you, you can't pull this off perfectly like He did. But it doesn't mean we don't at least try, like try to be human, try to see human. Um, I think it's just, it's, it's time to put action into our convictions. It's time to free humans and it's time to be human. It's time to be uh, free humans and be free humans, that's what I was trying to say. Free humans and be free humans. This is the final message in this short series, and I just decided I, I, couldn't, I wasn't going to say everything that we could be said about this. I just want to condense it into three sermons. And uh, when I say free, ser- free uh, humans, you might have something pop in your brain, and um, maybe we're not thinking the same thing. I don't know. Um, this isn't just about freeing others. That may be the initial push to use whatever privilege or resources or influence we have to find the humans that could use our help in discovering freedom. But here's what I've discovered to be true. That it's not just those that we help free who find freedom. Like so many times we find freedom for ourselves that we didn't even know we needed. Like by freeing others, we free ourselves. And we can't help ourselves be more human without becoming more human ourselves. Like last Sunday, we spent 45 minutes talking about how seeing others is really what the world needs to get better at. Like that is what people desperately need. But this last step of of freeing them and freeing us is going to require even closer proximity than just seeing them. So as humans, how can we find or how can we help other humans find freedom? We start by seeing them and then we free them. Like being seen begins to set people free. So I want us to consider what we can do to help people find the freedom they are desperately looking for, even if they don't know it, right? Uh, they have a God-given need to be seen and to be freed. Like we, all, we all, want, all want that connection that being seen gives us and that validation. Like we all want that. So for this last message in this short series, I want to I like take our circles of influence, whether it's large or small, and help those circles heal. And if more and more people help free more and more people, then eventually we find ourselves in the middle of an experience that maybe has been defined as, as an improvement in the condition or strength of something. Yeah, I'm talking about a revival, a revival of humanity, like to go back to humanity as our creator intended. That's what we all, that's what we need to see happen. It, this isn't about a revival of conservative ideas. It's not about a revival of liberal ideas. It's simply a revival of humanity, like humans being, seeing, and freeing. And when that happens, conservative and liberal, pro-vax and anti-vax, abolish the police, pro-police, pro-capital punishment, anti-death penalty, anti-abortion, pro-choice, pro-gun, anti-gun, 
Red Sox fans, Yankees fans, Ford pickup owners had to lighten it a little bit. Ford pickup owners, Chevy pickup owners, right? Everybody can realize that listening to another point of view doesn't negate your own views. It just helps you see someone. And maybe that's just the beginning. And maybe it's just the beginning of a conversation that might lead into something else. It'll lead to freedom for both of us. Here's the thing. Like, not everything needs to be something that you fight for. You know that to be true. Not everything needs to, you know, like, needs you to become their warrior. Like, you need, not everything needs you to be the culture warrior, to defend it at all costs. Like, not every hill is worth dying on. You know that to be true. But can I make one, one exception to this? I do think that helping course correct our humanity would be something that we would all be better off fighting for in the long run. I think if we could bump us back, remember that first part we were talking about the idea of a ship being off course by one degree. If we could bump us back by one degree to our original course, all of our political, cultural, theological, medical, relational, and sports battles will have a much better chance of seeing some semblance of forward progress. So here's the thing. We don't have to look any further than our own federal U.S. government, and especially today's Congress, and I would say as less, we saw it less than 24 hours ago. There is zero progress without some ability to compromise. We must learn to compromise, period. You probably, maybe, maybe you've, depending on your church tradition, maybe you've never heard that said in a church. Because some church people feel like, that's a, like that compromise is a four-letter word. Well, here's, here's newsflash. It's not a four-letter word. Uh, it's something that we, that we do as humans to get what we want. We do it all the time. Like, you do it or did it with your kids, so like, don't pretend like you haven't, right? You, you do it to get them to do something that they aren't willing to do, that you think they ought to do. Like, you compromise with your three-year-old to eat their broccoli, so if we can do that, certainly we can compromise with that 54-year-old in order to move towards something that we all believe in. Because freedom is the entire goal here. What good is it to walk around being compassionate and empathetic if we're still walking around in chains? Like, what good is it if the people in your life love who you have become if they're still walking around in chains? Like, if we can't ultimately end up walking without the chains that have bound us for a long time, then I'm going to tell you what, we're kind of missing the point of what being human is all about, especially the part of humanity that is tied to God's divinity. Let's get into this. Number one, I'm just going to call this one free loneliness. Free loneliness. Like, if you're in chains and you don't have a key, you have a few options. You can wait for those who put you in chains to show up and take the chains off of you. Uh, you can try to figure out a way to, I don't know, MacGyver the chains off of you. You can uh, give up and die in those chains. You can wait for a rescuer to come and wrestle the keys away from those who took you captive and maybe they come find you and remove the chains. And I think other than the MacGyver option, which usually, let's be honest, doesn't work very well for most of us, or maybe the give up and die option, in each of those cases, someone has to get near you to help you get free. Like they have to breathe the same air that you are breathing in order to take the chains off. They have to go all the way up to you and touch you to really see and be with you, to notice the way you are locked up. To do that, you have to get close. You have to get very specific. 
So last week in part two, uh, we talked about the chariot and Jesus' follower, Philip, uh, Philip the evangelist, going to talk to the Ethiopian eunuch. If you missed last week or either part of the of series, I really hope you'll go back and, and go to our website, watch the video, or listen um, on the podcast. We said that when Philip responded to the call of God through the angel that appeared to him, he went out to the road that led to the desert, and that's all the information he had, and, uh, and he did it. And he went out to the desert, and then he went out to the chariot, and then he got in the chariot. And, and, and getting in that chariot seemed like the most unlikely thing imaginable, because there were things, like there were social things, and cultural things, and religious things, and historical things that seemed as though should have kept those two men apart. But there's one thing I left out of the story last week, because mostly, uh, there, I know there was a lot for us to process, so we just kind of left it there. But this idea of trying to figure out what chariot you know, we're going to get into... Uh, that, that we're going to get uncomfortable enough to actually get into the chariot, that was enough for us to, to deal with last week. And hopefully you've been determined enough to be able to get to the place where you're starting to realize it's less about us being comfortable and more about others being seen. That was kind of the point. But when we left Philip last week, here's what the passage says in Acts chapter 8, verse 35. It says, After God told Philip to go up to the chariot, Philip went up to the chariot. And after the Ethiopian man invited Philip to get in the chariot, and Philip got in the chariot. Here's what happened, verse 35. Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. The eunuch didn't find total freedom by simply being seen by Philip. That wasn't the end of the story. That was the beginning of this process of him finding freedom. But what needed to happen next was Philip needed to touch the eunuch. In in, in the act of baptism and bringing the Ethiopian man's uh, body in and out of the water, this is where the eunuch finally began to find freedom. Not when Philip saw him, but rather when Philip touched him. In this story, the touching was baptism. But it's not the only way. People are desperate for us to get near enough to them to free them. Like at the basic core level, a human needs to be close enough to touch another human to truly experience what God has for them. Like I still think that embrace and physical proximity to a community of people who are for you, all of that is vital to our journey towards freedom. Like we are social creatures created by God to live in community. People need us near them if they're truly going to be able to find freedom. Like everybody around you needs a touch in some way, shape, or form. And it's going to be either our judgment of their level of suffering or others' judgment of us that's going to keep us from getting close enough to touch their stories. I love that Jesus didn't care about either of those things. He was completely unbothered unbothered by those who would judge him. He was completely unbothered by the, the maybe what might be overwhelming about the level of someone else's suffering. Neither of those held him back. I love this quick story in Jesus' life in Mark chapter 1. By Mark 1, his, his star is kind of rising. In 2023 terms, it'd be like his Instagram was blowing up, like kind of like Travis Kelsey this week. Yeah, you know, thanks to Taylor Swift, right? Um, Might be the first time I've ever said Taylor Swift in the sermon. But uh, I'm just trendy that way. I'm riding the wave. That's what I'm doing. Anyway, 
Everybody's talking about Jesus at this point. Everybody wanted to see him. Even the religious leaders are keeping an eye on him for different reasons, but because he's making some really big claims here. Like he grew up in the synagogues and learned all the Jewish religious law, and he was a rabbi, and here he was traveling the countryside, being completely unbothered by all the rules while staying bothered by the injustice that he saw. So Mark 1 verse 40 says, Then a man with a serious skin condition came to him, and, on, and maybe your, your version says leprosy, and on his knees begged him, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Verse 41, moved with compassion, Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. I am willing, he told him, be made clean. And immediately the disease left him and he was healed. So let's set this up for a second so we can see what was really happening here. We've lost the context of a leper in our day. This person with this horrendous, uh, infectious disease, was forced to live alone, away from other humans. They would be set apart, and if they traveled, had to travel through a town, they were forced by the law to cover their faces and call out the top of their lungs, unclean, 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 because if anyone touched them, they would also be considered unclean, and they might even get sick, and somehow, more importantly, their righteousness would be damaged. So you don't get near lepers, you just didn't touch them. But Jesus, Jesus is walking from town to town when this leper shows up and he gets near him and he begs Jesus to heal him. Now, this is what I want us to to get. Jesus did not have to touch the leper in order to heal him, right? Like, think about this. Genesis 1 says, God spoke and it was. God spoke and there was light. God spoke and there were animals. God spoke and there was life. Like whatever you believe about how creation played out, the bottom line is God spoke and it was. The Apostle Paul said this in Colossians 1. He said, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Everything was created by him in heaven and on earth, the visible and the invisible. He's before all things and by him all things hold together. So if you're still wondering who we're talking about, the Apostle John, in those familiar verses as the introduction to his gospel, says this in John 1. He says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. All things were created through Him. And then the Word became flesh and took up residence among us, and we observed His glory, the glory as the one and the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. It was by Jesus' words that creation came into existence. And it's by His words, according to Revelation, that Jesus finally sets things straight. Did you realize that? It's not an epic, somehow physical battle that sets things straight. It's the words of Jesus. It's the kind of power that He has in the words from His mouth. And he could heal people from a distance. And he, he did it. He'd done it before. It wasn't a big deal to him. But what's he do here? Scripture says, Move with compassion. Jesus reached out his hand and touched him. Now, uh, disclaimer, I'm no theologian. You knew that. But I believe that Jesus was showing those around him that no religious law was going to get between him and freeing someone. And I got, we have to be careful here, because as much as I would have enjoyed sticking it to those proud and judgy religious leaders, I don't think that was Jesus' motivation. I don't think he did that just to spite them. It says that Jesus was moved with compassion. Rewind to part one in this How to Human series and, and refresh your mind on what compassion is, right? Compassion is what moved Jesus to touch the man. And in the touching, the man was healed and he was free. We need to learn to allow the compassion inside of us to get us close enough 
to free someone. There will be situations in your life where you can bring someone a step closer to freedom by simply getting close enough to touch their life. Free humans by freely touching their stories. They're all around us. And it's not magic, but it could be mystical. Like we don't simply touch someone and then they're free. But most of the time, human touch is essential. And touch gives us the opportunity to free people. And I I am talking about physical touch, but it isn't just physical touch. It could very well mean that you are simply near enough to their story to do something tangible to allow your action to follow your conviction. So we're calling that, number one, free loneliness. Number two, free life. In the Gospel of Luke, uh, Jesus quoted the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 61 to explain why he came to earth, why he allowed himself to come in human form, to be born in human flesh, to live as one of us. Like, why? Would, why, Jesus? Here's why. Luke chapter 4, this is a direct quote from Isaiah 61 spoken by Jesus. The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free. Now, if you don't really read uh, the Bible, maybe you aren't sure what to think of the Bible as a whole, so you just read books about Jesus, even, even so you know that his primary role as he walked those hills of Galilee was to set people free, not only from physical things, but from mental and spiritual issues too. He, he laid out exactly how we are supposed to pull this off as well. And last week we talked about uh, how when Jesus met up with his disciples uh, on the very day of his resurrection, and they were like, I'm not so sure about this resurrected guy. I'm not sure if this is really a thing. And the scripture says that in their doubt, Jesus came near. And that passage in Matthew 28 goes on to tell us how we're supposed to free humans. Let's just kind of back up and get the context. Matthew 28, this appears to be Resurrection Day. The 11 disciples traveled to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped, but some doubted. (laughs) Then Jesus came near. Then after Jesus came near, he says this, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. So there's that word again. Did you catch it? The same thing we find Philip doing with the Ethiopian eunuch, baptizing. Like in, again, to, in order to get that close to someone, you're going to need to be close enough to touch them. Like freeing humans is going to take touching their hearts and their souls, like the depths of their person. And oftentimes, our attempts to free humans may not end up with them being free at all because we aren't Jesus. But what may end up ultimately being free is you. Because freeing others frees us. The goal is for us to walk around our days realizing that by freeing people around us, we will find freedom too. It's simple freedom. It's a win-win. Number three, it's free extravagantly. In the Gospel of John, uh, we're told the story of Jesus at a wedding. So here's a story, and it's probably familiar to you, but I'm going to read it anyway. John chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. 
each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Think about that. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. And he didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, whoever brings out the choice wine first, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you've saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana at Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Look at the absurdity of this moment. The absurdity of the generosity that Jesus showed everyone at that wedding in that moment. When the story begins, it seems like the wedding had been going on for a while because that's what they did. It was like this long, drawn-out celebration. You think weddings are long now, but it seems like they've been going on for a long time. So, and, and here's how we know that, because it says that Mary went to Jesus and said, they've run out of wine. And I'm no major D, although I have been a default wedding planner a few times. And I do know that you don't run out of wine at the beginning of a wedding. You run out of wine near the end of the wedding. So the generosity was about to happen at the end of the wedding celebration. The groom is probably embarrassed. I mean, like, what's going on? Did you run out of the good stuff? You, you did? Oh, never fear. The water into wine master's here. It's all going to be good. I don't know how this all played out, but Mary asked Jesus to do something. And he, if you notice, he kind of gives her a little lip. Like, the, the, if you don't read the attitude into that, I don't know what you're, I'm, I read that. Why, woman, why do you involve me? <laughs> he seems a bit put off, but it's his mom. And uh, so he does whatever she asks, because even if it is with a little bit of attitude. And I love how Mary takes his words and turns to the servant and says, do whatever he tells you. What kind of pull did she have? She's like, do whatever he tells you. And they look for the biggest water jugs they can find. 30 gallons. That's not a jug, that's a barrel. So it says that Jesus asked him to fill the six 30-gallon water jugs with water. And it says they fill them to the brim. So again, Mary says, do whatever he tells you, and they fill it to the brim. <laughs> this is important detail, so let's do the math. There were six jars of 30 gallons each. That equals how many gallons? 180, right, which would also convert to how many liters? 682, right, which would be the equivalent of 908 bottles of wine. Stop for a second. 908 bottles of wine. How big was this wedding? I know, right? I've been to extravagant weddings, but that seems like a little much. I mean, who does that? Like, and was this an open bar? Like, who's enriching themselves here? How does this work? There, these are details I would like to know. But um, the question really is, who gives above and beyond to that extent? No way they can drink that. And this isn't like, oh, I'm going to give 25% tip to my server today. This is like giving the server a winning lottery ticket, right? This generosity is insane. 908 bottles of the best wine they had ever tasted. Jesus is just ridiculously extravagant in his generosity. And it doesn't always make sense. But here's the point. This is how to human. This is how we're supposed to give above and beyond. And that's why when we see this kind of love in action, it has a potential to change us, not because of the gift, but because of seeing the giver give. Listen, we have the key to set people free. Like when we give extravagantly, we move others. 
We move them closer and closer to freedom. What I love about this principle is it doesn't mean that we all give the same amount. Extravagance for one person is completely different than extravagance for another. And there isn't a spreadsheet that will tell you what extravagance is for you. You can't plug your yearly income into an app and have it spit out a number. You can't plug in the number of hours you are free and have a formula that tells you how many hours you're supposed to volunteer in order for that to be considered extravagant. No, this is something you have to feel in your gut. It's something that God, through His Holy Spirit, is going to reveal to you when you ask Him to. This is up to you you. Like, you will know. You will. And the thing about extravagance is it's risky business. But isn't that exactly how we're supposed to love others? Free extravagantly. Number four, free empathy. Free empathy. For most of us, when we hear the word empathy, it normally brings feelings of uh, sadness, right? Because empathy isn't something that we love to think about. Uh, because we think empathy must mean we feel sad for someone. And although that can be true, uh, it's not all that empathy entails. Where sympathy is feeling bad for someone, empathy is feeling bad with someone, right? And this is what moves the human needle. This is what brings freedom to so many people. Empathy is absolutely necessary. It's not optional if we're going to pull this human thing off. Let's go again to the example of Jesus, this time in John 11. This is the chapter in the Bible with the shortest verse in the Bible. It's just two words, Jesus wept. That's the verse that is going to show us exactly how important it is to have empathy in our lives. And I, again, I'm no Greek scholar. I'm not an expert in any ancient language, but I'd like to offer my translation of this verse to you. I'd like to offer my scholarly translation. So here it is. Jesus had empathy. Now, that's not what it says. Well, let's look at the rest of the text for a second. John 11, verse 1, a man was sick, Lazarus from Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. It was her brother Lazarus who was sick. So the sister sent a message to him, Lord, the one you love is sick. And that, that, there's a mouthful right there that gives you the context for the kind of relationship. Verse 17, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Verse 21, Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Yet even now I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. Because I remember that wedding. I don't know if that's what she's thinking of. But. So now Jesus has shown up and he's getting pressed by the sisters that if he hadn't taken so long to get here, Lazarus wouldn't have died. Like, Jesus, you turned water into really good wine. We know you could have saved Lazarus. And Jesus absolutely knows he could have saved Lazarus. So why didn't he do it? Verse, 30, uh, verse 33, when Jesus saw her crying... And the Jews who'd come with her crying, he was angry in his spirit and deeply moved. Where have you put him? He asked. Lord, they told him, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. Jesus knew he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. So why in the world did he weep? Why in the world did he expel emotion from his eye sockets when he knew the outcome? Like, I'll tell you, it's because of empathy. Jesus wasn't weeping because he was sad that Lazarus was dead. Jesus was sad because his friends Mary and Martha were sad. Jesus wept for them, not for Lazarus. Jesus had empathy. 
Jesus knew that in a matter of minutes, Lazarus is going to come dancing out of that grave and he would have every right to look at their mourning and roll his eyes because their pain is only going to last for a few minutes anyway. It was temporary, but he didn't give those who mourned a speech to try to talk them out of their grief. He didn't give them data that proved that they were grieving for no reason. He didn't make them feel small for what, no, no, their lack of faith. He simply saw people hurting and it made him hurt as well. And he empathized so much with them that, who mourned that it made him weep. That's empathy. This is why it's so important that even if we know better, even if we know that something's going to turn out better for those who are weeping, even if we initially feel silly for feeling sad with someone, we should still step into empathy. Because empathy builds trust with those we are feeling with. Empathy builds trust with those we're feeling with. Can you imagine if every single person who calls faith community home decided that today was going to be the day that we begin to practice radical empathy that turned into radical action that frees people? Like, here's an important question to ask ourselves. Why is empathy so hard? Oh, I know that. Because it is. Because it just is. Empathy makes us feel uncomfortable Like feeling bad with someone is a lot harder than feeling bad for someone. With one, you are connected. With the other, you're just watching. And we need to get better at feeling with instead of just feeling for. We need to ask ourselves, why are we moving away from people in their pain? Like we need to listen more, to be quiet and learn to be with those who are hurting. This is, this is what it is to be more like Jesus because when we avoid empathy, we miss a chance to return to a more human way of being, a more real, connected, good way of being. And this is the good stuff. This, this is moment by moment, relationship by relationship, how we human. I'm going to wrap up. I'm out of time. I want to talk to two groups of people in this room, watching online and listening to the podcast. First, I want to talk to those of you who may not think Jesus is who he claimed to be. Those of you who think, yeah, sure, Jesus was a really good dude, a really good human. Like, even if you don't believe in Jesus the way I believe in him, you can still learn all these, like, amazing, incredible life hacks from his life. Like, take the whole God thing out of it if you have to, and he still wins the human award. Like, Mother Teresa, Gandhi, all the popes all combined, all the other incredible humans who have walked the face of the earth, who had impactful lives, but none of them had the impact Jesus did. So although I believe in a supernatural aspect of his life, that he is God in the flesh in human form, you don't have to in order to learn and live the message on some level. But I would ask you to consider diving deeper into his life and start by reading the Bible. Like it's kind of the ultimate how to human guide. Uh, Start by reading the stories about Jesus. Copy and paste those principles into your life. And do that over and over again. Watch those around you be influenced by the way you are living. And even as you explore the way of Jesus and his version of how to human, I hope that you will come to believe that he is who he said he is. That he is the only way to relationship with your creator, your heavenly father. That you'll come to trust him as the savior of your eternal soul. If you have questions about that, I would love it if you would come see me after we dismiss here in a few minutes. I'm going to stay right up here near the front. Come talk with me. To those of you who are our followers of Jesus, 
I choose to believe that we all want to do better. I believe that about us. And because we are followers of Jesus, it's our responsibility to ferociously pour his love on our friends and our opponents. You can call them enemies if you must. It's not our responsibility to convict them. That's the role of the Holy Spirit. Like comment, have you noticed comment section debates don't convince heart change? Have you noticed that? 30-second video clips where your side destroys the other team doesn't convince a, a heart to change. Makes us feel better in the moment, but it doesn't move their hearts toward Jesus. So when you're tempted to go there, ask yourself, is this what love looks like? Does it bring joy? Does it instill and encourage peace? And as we think about all this, about how to be in the world and about how to see and how to free in the world, what matters most is also what is most simple. It is simply showing up and loving. We are called as disciples of Jesus to wake up every day with our, this one goal, to love others ferociously, all others. Like that's it, that's the secret sauce. And we need each other, like all of us. We were created with each other in mind. I believe there's a design set forth for humanity to live in harmony, not totally without conflict, but with harmony being the goal. So think about that for a minute as the band is kind of assembling behind me. You know that in a song, there can be no harmony without a melody. The melody is what carries the song. The melody is what people remember when they're singing back a song. But you know what the harmony does? The harmony makes the song interesting. The harmony elevates the song. The harmony is what gives you goosebumps. The harmony is what makes people pay attention. No pressure. A song can be sung, a song can be sung without harmony, but the harmony puts it over the top. And harmony can only happen when we each sing our unique part. It doesn't happen in spite of differences. It happens because of them. So let's not try to just be a catchy melody. Let's live as a symphony of humanity that we were created to be, and that's only possible when we do it together. So when we go to this, from this place in a few minutes into whatever craziness and challenges you have, into whatever impossible situations you face, into that tough relationship, that hard conversation, into that opportunity to love, to help, to harmonize, See humans, free humans, and more than anything as you live and love and play and work, let's be the image of God and be 